Everybody, welcome back to the podcast, episode 65, coming to you with a McAllister. This is built by Roy McAllister. He builds guitars for Jackson Brown and David Crosby, among others. One of the finest luthiers in this country, made in Gig Harbor, Maine. Maybe I'll tell a story about him later, but let's get into it. Episode 65, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. You can hear the storms in the background. The sky is crying today in New York. I'm coming to you on Saturday afternoon of Memorial Day weekend. Hope everybody's getting a chance to process what we went through this week as a nation. I think it's an unprecedented thing in an all too common situation, right? I mean, this time it feels different and we've told ourselves that before only to go back to business as usual but I think something absolutely changed in this particular shooting. And I think most of you would agree with me. And that would be the police response, which is just unremarkable. They're not unremarkable, completely remarkable in the cowardness, cowardice, you know, lack of prioritizing lives over jurisdiction. You know, they wouldn't let the feds go in when they showed up. The local PD who had a huge budget, who had a SWAT team that couldn't be assembled, you know, and they couldn't save the lives of these young kids. And I don't need to get into all the details. We've all been following this, you know, since it happened last Tuesday and it's horrific. And it felt weird from the beginning, like the police reports. I heard about it right as I was driving back from my grandmother's funeral which was lovely. And I appreciate all your kind wishes. My family and I got together up in Albany for a couple of days and we gave her a wonderful send off and uh, she lived a wonderful life and passed on a legacy of love and service. That, that was sort of the theme that rang out at her memorial was, was service. You know, you don't live your life to make a bunch of money. You know, you hope to take care of your family and be comfortable, but it's about what you can really do with this time you have on this earth to, to help other people. And my grandma is one of those kind of people like in her seventies, she was going to Haiti and she was helping build schools in a remote village up, up in the Hills called Salted Air. And they built a well and all kinds of stuff. And on one of my grandma's last trips back there, she was stopped by some armed guards and she snuck past them, you know, to go help people that needed help. And I couldn't help but think of that image when these children weren't being helped, you know, when they were calling 911 for an hour, essentially sitting in this classroom and there was 19 cops sitting in the hallway outside, it just boggles your mind how none of them went in there. And I guess finally, you know, they took action, but it was too late, you know, and a kid died at the hospital, which shows you lives could have been saved had they acted sooner. And again, I'll try not to get too much into the, you know, the details of it because it's triggering and we've all dealt with it. But, you know, let's just let's just talk about the politics because it's so indicative of what they've been selling on the right. You know, this worship of authority at all costs, 
you know, the blue lives matter flag. How many blue lives matter flags do you think those cops had on their cars that were sitting around doing nothing? A lot, right? You saw them harassing the parents. They had their tasers out ready to put down parents. They had a dude on the ground in handcuffs who was trying to get by them, you know, to save his kid. And these were the tough guy cops with the bulletproof vests and the long rifles, long guns hanging off their chest, you know, like they were an occupying army. And anecdotes I've read from people who live in that town is that's exactly what the PD is. You know, we all saw the mayor. He sounded like Boss Hogg when he was yelling at Beto O'Rourke at the press conference the day after. And the press conference was a campaign ad for authoritarianism. It was a bunch of white dudes with badges sitting on the stage, you know, saying law and order is what we have here. And they were lying already. They were already covering up their lack of response, you know, and complete cowardice and bungling a mass shooting of children. They were already circling the wagons with their cowboy hats and their fake ass bravado, right? And their paunchy bellies coming from the brisket shack to sit next to the governor and tell us all we should be thankful to the cops. No, we shouldn't be thankful. We pay their salary. If you don't want to rush in and save a classroom full of kids, find another job because they're cowards and they're expected to give their lives. Right. And we all make big fanfares when we do. It's not like they don't join a long list of heroes if they make the ultimate sacrifice. But if you sign up for that job and put that badge on your chest, when push comes to shove, you better be ready to do all you can to stop the carnage, especially when it comes with, to children. A mother, a farm worker, 40 minutes away, you know, heard about it got in her car, drove 40 minutes to the elementary school where she had two children as students, got put in handcuffs, talked her way out of it because a friend knew a friend of one of the cops. They let her out of the handcuffs. She hopped a fence, went into the school and got her two kids out before they put down the shooter. That tells you everything you need to know about the bill of goods that you've been sold in this country in terms of policing is bullshit. And they hammer the Democrats with it week after week. The Democrats want to defund the police. No shit. Uvalde, Texas spends 40 or 60 percent of their budget on the police department. I'm not sure which figure it is, but too much. Right. In a, in a neighborhood that's struggling, working folks that feel harassed by the cops. You know, why is the mayor a middle aged white dude? That looks like he just came off of the set of In the Heat of the Night, the mayor of a town that's like 90% Hispanic. Why are they not being represented by Hispanic politicians? Why are the white dudes of Texas locking everything down? And that's what that press conference was. That was like, you ain't from around here, are you, boy? Get out of here, Beto. How dare you politicize a political event? Right. As they're sitting next to a governor wearing a badge and a stupid shirt he had embroidered with a star on it like he's Walker, Texas Ranger. Right. It's all this bullshit iconography, as I talked about on my car rant. Texas is known for that. There's no other state that like reveres guns and authority more than Texas. Every cartoon character congressman pretends like, you know, he's Captain America, like Dan Crenshaw and stuff. Right. It's all bullshit. But the people eat it up with a spoon. 
God, football, guns, and the Bible. You know, it's bullshit. It's a con job. It's about caring and empathy for people and saving lives when it counts, not consolidating your power. But the Republicans react to it only one way. All the tweets immediately in the first afternoon were, let's thank our brave law enforcement. I'd like to thank the brave law enforcement. None of them even mentioned the children. You got kids that bodies are still in that classroom and you're thanking the cops. There'll be time for that later. How about thanking and trying to comfort the families? How about doing something about a product that an 18-year-old bought two weeks earlier? He bought two guns at the end of May when he turned 18, killed his grand or shot his grandma in the face. The same day I buried mine, this kid's shooting his grandma in the face because he's a troubled teen and crazy. I was a troubled teen. I was raised by my grandma. You know what I mean? Not everybody goes crazy. But even if you do or you don't, you don't need access to a gun. Nobody needs a gun like that. And the cops knew it. That's why the cops didn't go in, because they were scared. They were scared they would get blown away as soon as they walked in that classroom. And I'm not entirely unsure that the most grievous action, which was one of the cops saying, hey, if you need help, yell out. And a little girl yelled out. And then the killer moved in and shot her. So whatever cop did that went against the training that they even give to the kids which is stay still and quiet. I'm not even sure that that guy didn't do it out of his own cowardness to draw attention away from himself when he was breaching the room. It was right after that that they got in the you know firing match and took the, the shooter out. But I'm not sure that that wasn't a diversionary tactic. And at best, it was a horrible mistake that cost a girl her life who sat there for 40 minutes or an hour with her friends dead and teacher dead all around her, Right. So how is somebody that untrained? What is Border Patrol doing going into that classroom in the first place when you have a SWAT team? You know, why did it take so long to assemble them? If they're part time, they should have some kind of circumstance where they can show up to an active shooting situation in 10 minutes or less. If that elementary school was in River Oaks, which is a fancy neighborhood outside of Houston, They'd be dudes rappelling off of helicopters to get into that building, right? They wouldn't be arresting white parents that were millionaires if they were outside yelling at the cops to go inside. They would go inside because their attitude would be, these are the people I work for. They pay my salary. Their attitude isn't that way towards the Latino community there. And all the Latinos who live there know that. And some of the cops even went in and rescued their own children before the shooter was subdued, which is just beyond the pale. I understand the human instinct to do it, you know, but what if you're going to do something like that, at least be honest. Hey, we were all chicken shit. We got our own kids out. We couldn't stop the killer. A bunch of your kids are dead. I'm sorry. It's our worst hour ever. But that's not what they did. They lied. They changed their story 11 times. What would the cops do to a suspect, a suspect who was being interrogated, who changed his story 11 times to the cops? He'd be in jail. They'd use it against him in a court of law and he'd be sent away. The cops did this in full view to a worldwide media audience. They lied and changed the story and the timeline for days. And everyone knew it was wrong and didn't smell right. And now we know that brutal reality of their inaction. And it's a direct result 
of conservative politicians that take money from the NRA because they know they can hoodwink people with this don't question authority, bullshit patriotism, wave a flag. Hey, the cops, the bravest, the best of us. No, they're not the best of us. They're just like the rest of us. They're scared to get shot by a weapon of war. The kid was using bullets that expanded upon impact. Cops knew that because they found his backpack outside the school with 300 rounds. So they were like, oh, shit, this guy's going to take us out. 19 of them, one for each kid who died, sat out there in the hallway for an hour, feet away from the door, which they're still not telling us how it was breached, if it was barricaded, locked, whatever. The best excuse is that they're waiting for the janitor to get a key. What? It's a fucking door. Have you ever seen Breaking Bad? Put some C4 on the hinge. You know what I mean? Like what a thermite is what they did in Breaking Bad. But you get my point. Are you kidding me? You can't break down a door with a window in it. It was just complete cowardice. cowardice. And it's just like from that culture that just worships this stuff. Every football game from high school to the big stupid stadium in Dallas, which I've done Super Bowls and NBA All-Star games. And it was a complete waste of money and space. I'm sorry for my Texas listeners. I know you've, you've had a tough week, but fuck that stadium. You know, every one of those stadiums, every Friday night, Let's salute our troops. Let's salute the flag. Let's salute our brave law enforcement officers. This is drilled into people so you don't question authority. And my point is not to say that some of those, you know, that all those people are bad. I know some brave, brave men who are career Dallas Fire Department guys. I know a lot of cops in Texas. I know some brave guys that are crying right now, some big dudes that are guaranteed on their knees weeping because they would have been able to stop that situation and they weren't there. And the guys that wore the same badge as they did more or less, you know, the same brotherhood were there and didn't do it. Didn't do the job. The kids should have been taken out in a matter of minutes, period. And Texas is full of dudes and women who could do it, you know, and they weren't there and they didn't get the chance because of territorial stuff. And we saw the arrogance of the Department of Public Safety when they gave these press conferences. They went from bad to worse. You know, that first guy was out there the first day. It was horrible. I'll circle back to you. I'll get you some answers. Then he was replaced the next day by another dude who had to, you know, give the damning results of the timeline. It's like nine different calls to 911 over a period of 40 minutes when these kids are in the classroom. Hey, I just called five minutes ago about a mass shooting. My friends are dead next to me. Can you send somebody, please? That's insane. It's insane that it happened. And the larger point I'm going to make here and that I'm getting to is that this time it does feel different because we've different because we've never had such an egregious example of the system failing us. You know, we're all taught to believe that these guys are going to keep us safe. And they didn't. They didn't act in any way to stop the madness. And they essentially admitted it. They said, we thought it was a no longer an active shooter situation. We thought everybody was dead, basically. And he was just barricaded. And why risk our own lives? Which is the stupidest excuse ever, because if people are still down with gunshot wounds, there may be a chance to save them. 
And what were you basing that information on anyway? You weren't in the room. So the whole thing is just repugnant. And we can't entrust our lives to the police department to save them. Thereby, we can't be selling these guns, which you can buy commonly in the state of Texas, thanks to the governor sitting there at his press conference with all his redneck cops around him, turning it into a political event. Right? So it's plain as day. The AR-15 needs to be taken away. You can't have these things. You know, 1994, we had the assault weapons ban, and then the Republicans let it expire. They wouldn't, they wouldn't vote to, to keep it in place. And then mass shootings have gone nuts again. I may have the dates wrong, but you know what I mean? The, the 20 years or so of, of mass shootings have been a de- direct result of letting that bill expire which was inspired in part by a shooting on the Long Island Railroad when I was a young man here in New York. You know, you don't let people have access to military-grade weaponry in a civilian society. Is There's no sense. Australia had the biggest mass shooting in history. They made that stuff illegal the next day, and they haven't had one since. You know, ditto other Western nations. But America has been conned by the Second Amendment bullshit that the NRA says, which is a lie to begin with, okay? It's not your rights. You don't have the right to bear arms in this egregious, stupid, militaristic, toxic way. The NRA is pushing racism on people because they're trying to sell a product, right? Because guns don't really wear out. You could take a gun that's 200 years old and pretty much shoot it right now. Right. Not with the same lethal accuracy as the new weapons, which is the point of what I'm saying. The forefathers had muskets. The bullets weren't even invented yet. Right. They didn't have bullets. Bullets were invented by a French dude, you know, in like 1840 or something. Not when these guys were writing this. And the Second Amendment itself was to appease the anti-federalists, dudes like Patrick Henry, who was the governor of Virginia at the time, which was like 60% African-American enslaved people. And they were worried that there would be an uprising, as they should be worried, because what they were doing was evil, right? And if dudes got a chance, they'd probably put you down for keeping them in chains. And they knew that. So the well-regulated militia, people like to say it was about defending against the British. That's not entirely true because the southern states didn't send their militias to fight in the Revolutionary War because they were worried about the enslaved people revolting if they didn't keep them under armed guard, right? So when Patrick Henry was worried about federalism, what he was basically saying is who's going to protect me? If all these enslaved people I have working for free, making me a rich man and my friends making us all rich on our plantations, picking our tobacco and cotton and stuff, this free labor could turn into a lethal situation if I'm not allowed to keep a gun and shoot the ones that try and escape. Right? That's where the Second Amendment truly comes from. And you can use all kinds of semantics. But that's the end of the game. So there's rot in it from the beginning. That's also, by the way, where police forces come from in this country, right? They were started to catch runaway enslaved people. 
okay? All, on, all the way up to the NYPD, okay? So white supremacy is baked in to the documents of this country and the founding of this country. We've never had an honest accounting of it. And then we've had it mythologized into these lifestyle brands by evil, evil organizations like the NRA. You know, the NRA used to truly be about, you know, American riflemen and sort of scientific shooting and hunting and all this kind of stuff. And it devolved when they had something called the Cincinnati Revolt, where this guy took over the NRA in the late 70s. And they had their convention that year in Cincinnati. They had it in Houston this year on Friday, which we'll get into. But they had a convention in Cincinnati in the late 70s. And this dude named Harlan I don't know what his last name is. You can look it up. It doesn't matter. He's not worthy of it, right? He's a guy who was, went to prison for killing some Mexican guys. He, he authored a bill. He was like a politician in the South in Texas. He had like a, a wet back law. That's his words, not mine. He was a racist who wanted to shoot people, right? And he worked his way into sort of taking over the NRA. He had a coup at this particular convention in Cincinnati. They turned off the AC and tried to sweat everybody out and were like, it's our organization now. And from that moment on, it became about racism and selling guns to people so they would live in fear of the others and they would buy a bunch of guns to protect themselves. That became the business model of the NRA in the late 70s. And people like Reagan were only too happy to continue that paradigm shift because it helped conservatives stay in power. You know, and I have an uncle named Chris and uh, Kassler. I have two uncles named Chris. I should be very specific here, but I have one. I haven't talked to him in probably 15, 20 years. But when I was a kid, he was a director out in LA and Hollywood. And he made those NRA training films when, when, when uh, Charlton Heston first became like the president of the NRA, he made these films for him. It might even have been before Heston was president. I think Heston was just sort of a paid, you know, infomercial actor in the beginning. And my uncle made me or made these, uh, these training NRA training videos and signed me up for a lifetime membership when I was a kid, you know, when I was in elementary school, much to the horror of my very liberal, you know, very woke mother. And uh, I remember the hat, you know, the hunting NRA hat and all this stupid stuff, but you know, even back then, where we're at now would seem like, yeah, it'll never get that bad. I mean, now it's just insane, right? Now they're just like, screw you. You know, we're going to launder money for the Russians. Wayne LaPierre is one of the most corrupt people in this country. The whole thing is a paper tiger at this point, right? Because they're so deeply indebted and they have so many lawsuits at the NRA. They're not really a functional organization, but Republican politicians are still scared to stand up to them. At least the super weak ones, right? Your Donald Trump's and your Ted Cruz, who both spoke there on Friday, you know, your other ones are playing it cute. Governor Abbott sent a video instead of showing up in person, you know, a little wink, wink. But my point is, that's the sort of mouthpiece. That's the bullhorn of racism, sell guns, sell bullets, right? Because as I said, a few minutes ago, guns don't really go bad, right? Your gun isn't going to really wear out. Right. So you sell somebody one or two guns, they're kind of set for life. But if you create a situation of fear and you have to arm yourself and protect yourself from the others that are coming, then you can sell a lot of products. That's why every one of these shootings, there's always a run on gun stores. 
you know, and we have a deeper sickness in this country. The begin- early days of the pandemic were like the highest gun sales in history. You know, people in L.A. were lining up to buy guns because people were like, oh, I guess it's Mad Max time. <laughs> you know, I guess it's every man for himself. And if that's the country you want to live in, keep voting Republican. Keep letting these con men sell you fear so they can make a buck. Because Wayne LaPierre is going to be on his yacht taking off when it hits the fan. You know, Donald Trump is going to be under armed guards in his private club where no firearms are allowed when it hits the fan. So, you know, you're not making yourself safer. Saturday night before the shooting in Texas, two guys got into an argument in a parking lot over somebody's muffler was too loud, which I get because that's another assault that people ride around with these super loud cars scaring everybody. It's just it's an it's an indication of the civil breakdown of the United States. I mean. When I was a kid, mufflers, there was muffler laws. You couldn't have a car that loud. You'd get a ticket. Now nobody cares and people jack up their cars to be offensive, right? So two guys are in a parking lot in Texas at a 7-Eleven or something, and they get in an argument with each other and they shoot each other dead. Both of the guys dead. That's Texas. That's Wild West. Do you want that? As broken as our society is now, as much as people are at each other's throats in traffic, you know, we're a nation that can't handle Black Friday, right? Which, why, why, why the, by the way, why is it called Black Friday? Because it now has a negative connotation. Why do we call it that, right? But that's the day when the TVs are half price, you know, and whatever junk made in China that everybody wants to buy, buy this year. And I'm not dissing China by saying that, but it's ironic that people in these towns that have all the industry moved over seas, right? Because everybody became beholden to corporate shareholders over workers in America and factories. And that was fomented during the Republicans and, and you know, perfected during Clinton's years. I can't lay all the blame for that on the Republicans, right? That's both sides of the aisle because there's money to be made, Right. But to have those same people rush and fight each other to buy some product that, in essence, weakened their own communities. But we're a country that can't even handle Black Friday and getting along with each other, you know, to go buy a cheap TV at Walmart. You think we can be trusted with weapons like this? There's 285, my facts may be wrong, but about 285 million cars registered on the road in the United States. There's over 400 million guns. So think about how many cars you see on the street in a day, you know, and, and, and nearly double that. And that's how many weapons are already out there. Point being, you're never going to get rid of all the guns that are already out there. And no one's saying we want to, but we have to stop selling them. If you stopped selling them already, 19 kids would be sitting around with their families this weekend, having a barbecue as they should with their hardworking families who are the best of us. There's a lot of agricultural workers in that community. Farm working is not the labor that people think it is. It's the hardest, like, you know, job, one of the hardest jobs in the world. It's not the unskilled labor that people think it is. It takes a lot of skill. If you ever see these farm workers, they're amazing at what they're doing. It's literally backbreaking work. It's horrifically hard work. And these guys do it with dignity. These men and women putting food in our, on our tables across the country, 
just trying to live their lives, better their circumstances, send their kids to school safely so their kids can maybe live a bigger dream than they were afforded in this lifetime. But in the meantime, they're going to celebrate family and they're going to celebrate birthdays and holidays and provide a safe home and a nourishing meal for their kids. And now that's gone. They're not doing that this weekend. They're, they're planning funerals. You know, we just planned and had my grandma's funeral. She was 91 and lived a full life full of blessings and love. And it was hard. It was painful because loss is loss when you love somebody. I can't imagine what that's like for a 10-year-old, for a family grieving a beautiful angel that's no longer there. A little son whose shoes are still sitting by his bed, whose clothes are in his closet, whose birthday presents they were unwrapped. And those kids aren't with their families this weekend. Right? Because the NRA needed to make more money. Governor Abbott is a stooge for the NRA. His entire political career is based on getting checks from the NRA and oil companies. The same type of kids he let lie in a classroom slaughtered and then lied about it, helped his police department lied about it obfuscated, had a press conference. The same people, he let them freeze to death a year earlier because he wouldn't upgrade the electrical grid. So kids died. They froze to death. A young man froze to death who was living in a trailer in South Texas under the governor's watch. And now he's got 19 more bodies. But he knows his hold on power comes from the cultural side of this stuff the hey we're texans you know that's why ted cruz is frying bacon on the same type of gun an ar-15 do you ever see his campaign video he fries a piece of bacon on the muzzle because he shoots it so much and he's like mm, good bacon we love our guns in texas you know governor abbott tweeted out california's number one in gun sales we can do better texas that's insanity but they do that because people have been sold this bill of goods that a gun has to do with your freedom. A gun makes you a prisoner. If you live in that much fear, you're a prisoner. It's just like addiction. Addiction is based in self-centered fear, right? The worst part of addiction besides the physical stuff and what it does to the people you love is what it does to your brain. You're always thinking about yourself and that becomes exhausting. And when you put fear on top of that, it becomes debilitating on a soul level. And that's the product they're selling people. Soul debilitation. Live in fear. You might need to shoot a bunch of people with a machine gun that come into your house. No, you're not going to have that opportunity. A kid or somebody in your house is going to find it, kill himself or his brother. You're going to put it to your own head if you're drunk, you know? If you buy a gun, the odds are you might die from that gun. And the odds are a lot better that you or someone you love will get hurt with that gun over a bad guy. And if you're going to the NRA convention this weekend, you're not a good guy at this point. If your reaction to what happened in this country this week and last week, because I did two shows last week on the massacre in Buffalo, which was only two weeks ago today when I'm recording this. 
right? If you're showing up at an NRA convention right now after that, I got news for you, son. You ain't a good guy. You ain't even close to it. You're so far off the wrong track right now. You need to do a real reality check. You need to find another way to empower yourself. You know how you build self-esteem? Not by buying a gun that makes you feel like Rambo. By doing esteemable acts. By living a life of service and helping somebody else. Getting out of your own way is the best way to alleviate suffering. Seva, service. You know? And honest service, not stuff for your ego. I mean, just doing something because it's the right thing to do and not making a little TikTok video out of you buying lunch for a homeless guy or something, you know, doing something that you're not even taking credit for anonymously. That's how you build true self-esteem because you're aligning yourself with the forces of good and love. You're not doing it for any other reason than it's the right thing to do. And I'll tell you a secret, it works in creativity too. When you're being creative just for the sake of being creative and not thinking about the results, you, you, you're tapping into like a higher power to, to borrow another term from recovery. Anybody who's ever done anything knows that you get out of your own way and, and magic happens. You know, you get in tune with something bigger than yourself. And that's what we're all looking for, right? We're all really trying to be part of a community. Certainly in recovery, that's what we long for is a connection. You know, that's why they call it spirits, right? Because you drink it and you feel like you're connected, you know? But if you're somebody who's, you know, has a sort of allergic, allergic biological reaction to alcohol like I do, then it just turns into this, this other thing, <laughs> right? But my point is you're questing in the beginning to feel connected. And I think that's what a lot of these people feel that are getting caught up in this gun culture. They want to feel connected. They go to the football game. They see how everybody respects the guy with the gun on his belt and the flag on his, you know, chest, right? And they say, I want to be a part of that. And in many ways, that's cool. You want to do, be of service, join the military, you know? You might get used for cadent, cannon fodder, right? To help some rich guy's war, but that's what it's all about anyway. You might not get killed and you might make some money and stuff and meet some people and see the world. You know, I'm not going to get all into that. I know a lot of cool vets, you know, so, but my point is there's ways to be of service and still have the accoutrements of this militarized lifestyle that's being sold, sold to you, especially you in Texas and other Southern states. But the way to do it is not to go buy armored vests and assault rifles at a convention from some asshole sitting behind a table telling you how that's going to protect you because all the iconography of that shit is all like assault rifles, right? As Jim Jeffrey says, the great comedian, he's like, it's not called a defense rifle. It's called an assault rifle, right? So this whole thing, I need it for my protection is bullshit. You need it for your self-esteem. You're trying to buy a feeling that's you're chasing an illusion, buying that feeling. You're making yourself weaker. You're making yourself unmanlier. You know, one of the gun companies had an ad, you get your man card back when you buy an AR-15. No, you don't. You surrender your manhood. Okay? Because real manhood is standing up for those who need protecting. And not with a gun, but with an open heart. The guys who stood in the, high, in the hallway had all kinds of guns. They already had the same type of weapons and they were still scared. 
They were scared to turn the corner and stand in that doorway until they absolutely had to. And the ones that did, you know, good for them. The ones that didn't give up your badge, give up your gun. I hope you never work another day in law enforcement for the rest of your life. And I hope Texas is able to accomplish that because you would think their fellow fraternal police officers would say, no, those guys got to go. You know, I'm not standing next Memorial Day with them. Right, because Memorial Day, they did it earlier this year, but normally in D.C., that's the National Police Memorial. And I was there in the early 90s with my friend Nick, who I did a special episode with, who was an NYPD cop. And I've never seen a more lawless bunch of dudes. These guys got drunk and were marauding. And they finally got in trouble a couple of years later. Somebody took a video of them like harassing, you know, sexually harassing people and like destroying a hotel lobby and stuff. And they had to tone it down. But these guys would come and, you know, the idea was we're just going to blow off some steam and cops would come from all over the country to, you know, pay homage to the fallen. And they'd go marauding. They were like Vikings. Because they had badges and they're young and jacked up on testosterone. They were all white, all of them. This is the early 90s. Not saying there aren't minorities on the force, but they weren't invited to this party. You know, this was the white Viking racist cop brotherhood. And even those guys should be ashamed of how these dudes reacted, right? So hopefully, you know, there's a little self regulation going on or it gets swept under the rug you know that's our choice do we go on as normal do we let the congress turn republican in november which everyone's saying it's will it will i i don't i'm not saying that yet get out and vote it's not looking good but you better vote don't give up you can't you have to vote you have to get everybody you know to vote and you have to vote Democratic down the line. I don't care. You know, hold your nose if you don't like the candidate, but vote. Vote Democratic. Because if they take over, it is all over. You know, right now we may have a small window to do something. At least background checks on assault weapons. I mean, to think that that's all we're asking for is, is in and of itself mind-boggling. You know, the compromise isn't like, oh, just let us have the AR-15s. No, just let us do a background check. You know, it used to be, here's something I'll point out. Mental illness was what Fox News started running with as a bullet point immediately. And so did the governor. Governor Abbott, you know, parroted this. This is about mental illness. Governor Abbott just cut $211 million out of the Texas budget to deal with mental illness, right? So you made it worse. You, you made it worse, right? But say it's mental illness. One of the first things Trump did as president, I mean, literally, one of the first things he did was rescind a rule that the Social Security Administration, which pays out disability checks, mental illness being a disability that some people received benefits for, they could no longer work, right? Those names would always be reported to the FBI's database that were used in background checks because they're like, hey, Joe Smith over here can't work because he's, you know, he's, he's psycho, <laughs> right? I don't think that's the technical term, right? But he's paranoid, schizophrenic or something that could be dangerous and you wouldn't want him necessarily to have access to a weapon. So they would report those names because it was proven. They, they asked for federal benefits because they had mental illness. They would report those names to the FBI and they would be cross-checked in these federal databases. 
The first thing Trump did was rescind that. Literally one of his first actions, right? When he was going to Saudi Arabia, when he became president. Think about that. He made it easier for mental ill people to get guns on his first day on the job, essentially, right? And now it's six years later and we're having weekly mass shootings and they're using the same talking points that they helped make worse to argue against gun control. And it becomes this vicious circle. And the Republicans are good at it because if you lie the loudest, people believe your lies. Because again, they feed into this cultural sort of thing. Everybody views everything in this binary way now. You're either a Dem or a Republican, red or blue, right? On or off. That's how everybody's viewing everything. That's how we've been trained to view things by the people that are manipulating the voters. You know, by the guys that own Fox News, by Putin, you know, who's got a big hand in the NRA, right? I could do a whole episode on all the ties between the NRA and the Russians. They were helping the Russians launder money, you know? Maria, Marina, whatever, who was taking pictures with everybody, Butova, I can't remember her name, Butina, Maria Butina, right? She was running around. She was like Putin's lobbyist with the NRA, meeting all these Republican conventions at, you know, Republican politicians at gun shows. And she was a hot redhead, you know? She was a honey trap, right? So they have all kinds of nefarious dealings, just as the Republicans do, but they don't want you to know that, right? Trump showed up at the NRA convention and read the names of these children. He can't read, as I tell you all the time. So you heard him garbling these children's name, names, and then they're ringing a bell like it's the Hunger Games. I mean, it was the most offensive thing. And then he dances. Then he's doing the flossing stupid thing, dancing to the YMCA. And now he's on his way to Wyoming to have a fundraiser against Liz Cheney because she wanted to hold him accountable for January 6th. Which, by the way, in all this news that happened this week, it didn't get much mileage, but it came out through testimony, through people close with Mark Meadows, that when he went in to check on Trump, who was watching January 6th unfold in his dining room, eating meatloaf and watching our Capitol get attacked, and he heard the chants of hang Mike Pence, he reacted favor favorably and essentially said, maybe they should hang Mike Pence. Think about that. That's in the congressional record now. That's coming out in the January 6th hearings that are going to start on the 9th, two weeks, a week, you know, less, less than two weeks, right? That's coming out. So that happened this week. We learned that. We learned that that same Mark Meadows who observed this reaction from Trump, burned documents in his office. The guy's burning documents in the White House. What more of a red flag do you need that these guys are so corrupt? And you would think a guy who did such corruption would be hiding at this point, right? You think Trump would be like, keep my name out of all the news. I got away with one of the biggest crimes in history, you know, trying to overthrow the government and treason. I'm going to lay low. Anything but. He's doing fundraisers every weekend. He's building his army. He's doubling down when there's a mass shooting. And by the way, he's the guy who flew with Melania and posed with a newly orphaned baby after the shooting at the Walmart in Santa Fe, Texas. 
I think that was the Walmart. Maybe that was another school. It's hard to keep up with them. I live 20 minutes as the crow flies from Sandy Hook. You know, I had to drive through there on my way home on Tuesday, knowing we were in another one. And that's almost 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years this December. You know, it boggles the mind that we're allowing this to happen. And we don't have to. We're not powerless here. It's a small minority when you think about it that is propagating this terror, right? But it's a loud minority. And it's the minority that is always traditionally held power. You know, and that's the thing you really need to examine. I'm not anti-white folks. I know I'm always bitching about like these old white men. I'm one of them. My grandfather was Nixon's envoy to Vietnam. He was his personal envoy. He's basically like a CIA guy. My family was on the runway in 63 when Dien was ousted in Saigon. And my grandma and my dad and uncles were all on a plane when they evacuated the diplomats' families. You know, and my grandfather was over there. He lived in Panama. He lived all over the world doing messed up stuff for this country. You know, he was in naval intelligence in World War II. He was involved in bombing Dresden, like crazy stuff he did for this country. And he finally left because he got in a fight with Kissinger over the bombing of Cambodia and said, we can't do this. I've done too much crazy stuff for this country, thinking it was the right thing to do and now seeing it's not. You know, and his kids, by the way, didn't serve in Vietnam. My dad and their and his brothers, my uncles, didn't serve in Vietnam, right? Because they were rich kids. They could go to college, right? So I'm not anti-establishment, but the establishment has been corrupted. And once Citizens United happened, once unlimited money came into American politics and could be funneled through people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, and once the Russians got a toehold, on the political discourse in this country and were able to put a candidate up like Donald Trump, who they enabled and helped become president, and he actively courted their help. When you had all that against the cultural battlefield that made Hillary Clinton public enemy number one, which was just insane that people bought that shit, you thought a con man sexual predator was a better choice an accomplished woman who spent her career helping others and serving this country, right? She was secretary of state. Trump was a bankrupt drug addict who grew up on Fifth Avenue. He grew up in Queens, but who's lived on Fifth Avenue since he was, you know, 1982, right? Never did anything for another person in his life. He was a game show contestant host. You know, I worked as you well know, on Celebrity Apprentice. He used to call Herschel Walker and the other black contestants the N-word all the time, and everybody knew it, and nobody cared. Nobody cared enough to speak out about it. I did. Holly Robinson Pete did. And by the way, Herschel Walker's brain was mush back then. They would make fun of him behind the scenes. The guy could barely talk. I mean, he was just CTE or whatever. I'm not a doctor, but you know, punch drunk is is the best description I could have of the guy. And now they've made him a candidate. Trump is all for him being a Senate candidate. He could likely win in Georgia, which would be disgusting if he takes Raphael Warnock's Senate seat. But who knows? You know, when you did have results down there in Georgia, you know, 
Trump wasn't able to get Kemp ousted and it was a personal vendetta because Kemp wouldn't throw the election towards him. But he's got all these other guys that hopefully next time will. You know, and that's where we're heading for all this stuff. You know, Kevin McCarthy's like, I'm not going to testify unless you show me the evidence you have against me. Jim Jordan said the same thing. What? Not showing you the evidence. It's not your position to get to ask. You show up and testify. You're supposed to be an officer of the court in its essence, right? You're a lawmaker. You're supposed to respect and follow the law, period. If you're not going to do that, get out of the job. Just like the cops, if you're not going to rush into the classroom, get out of the job. Put your own needs aside for the greater good. These guys are obviously criminal, and that's why they don't want to do it, because they know they're busted. And they're just using it as a fishing exposition, you know, expedition. It's maddening. maddening. But anyway, here's this guitar. This microphone isn't very good for picking up guitars, but you get the idea. And that's Roy McAllister. He lives in a gig harbor, Washington, and builds these in a little shop. And uh, Jackson is a huge fan of them, and so is David Crosby. And I got mine when I was working for those guys. And, uh, you know, Jackson likes his so much. One time we had to fly it over. He was playing Glastonbury and we were already on tour and it hadn't come with us on the carney which is you have to list all the instruments you bring on tour and uh, he wanted this guitar so the tour manager at the time I was the road manager tour manager had to uh, FedEx it to our hotel in London which cost a lot of money <laughs> and then he needed an adjustment so he had Roy McAllister meet us in Scotland to adjust it but it's kind of like a Stradivarius you know not the same value but handmade you know incredible instruments he's got a couple models that he made for jackson and a couple for david and this was an om om 42 for those who know what that is martin copy and uh it's a cool guitar it's the only guitar i have that almost like makes me feel high when i'm playing it needs some work the action's a little high but it makes me feel something i mean they all make you feel something but this one really makes you feel something it's got a soul to it so I pulled that out because, you know, music helps. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of anxiety in the world. I have to process this stuff and, and get back to what, you know, I feel I can do to keep speaking out and making a difference. And a lot of that comes through laughter. You know, laughter is how I let off the pressure. There's a lot of laughter and grieving for me. I'm Irish. It comes with the territory, you know, and I've been working hard on my stuff. I'm doing new shows. January or June 7th, I'm going to be at City Winery in New York City. June 8th, I'm going to be at City Winery in Philadelphia, back to back. You know, two nights, going to be up there. And I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. You know, I got a lot of jokes and I got a set that works, you know, and it's always political. But I've been watching the Carlin doc, as so many of us have. And, you know, I really respect how he was willing to go up there and sort of forego the laughter when he really made that you know, that switch initially in his career from, from doing stuff that was guaranteed going to get him laughing and was making him 250 grand a year in the late sixties, you know, playing theaters in Vegas, you know, showrooms, which is an, a lot of money 
for a comedian back then. And, uh, you know, he gave it up, went to playing coffee houses because he wanted to talk about the world and how he sees it. And I feel that same calling, you know, I got notebooks full of stuff I write. And I know there's things in there that'll be fun to listen to and get a laugh. And I know there's things that I really want to say. And I'm almost, you know, I always lean towards like telling stories that have meaning. Anybody who's seen me before know that's a big part of my act, you know, but it's almost like I almost want to go full Carlin, you know, <laughs> and just like, or, you know, Paul, uh, what's his name? I can't think of him now. Sandra Bernhardt was friends with him, African-American comedian. Would just get up there and, and like, not rant, but, you know, Paul Mooney would just really say what he needed to say. And we're in a time that you got to say what needs to be said. So there's a lot of stuff I'm thinking about, and I, I'm not going to hold back. That being said, it's going to be a good time. Come on out. I got great openers in both places. It's a good time. I think it's therapeutic, you know, to come together and laugh is uh, it's healing. It's like I'm always talking about music when we get together and we're one spirit, you know, and we can reflect on the issues of our time and realize, you know, we have strength. There's strength and empathy. There's strength and compassion. There's strength in numbers, right? We had a funeral this week. People come. There's a reason people come and look you in the eye and say, I'm sorry for your loss because it makes you feel better, right? And we've all lost something this week. I'm not alone in my loss. We all feel that pain unless we're just thinking about our future, which was the reaction of the Republicans, as I just spoke about, right? But empathetic folks, we, we know. We know how bad this weekend hurts. It's pretty hard to put on a happy face these days, but it doesn't mean we can't come together, you know, and if we laugh about it and we look at this hypocrisy and we call it out for what it is, we can change it. Awareness is how you change something. You don't even have to take action at first. I, don't, I mean this in a general way, take action on gun control and stuff. But like, if there's something in your life that you want to change, becoming aware of it is the first step. Right. It's like AA, like we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. You know, when you're honest about something, when you just look at it before you even take action, you just become aware of it. There's a strength in that, you know, and there's a lot in our political life that we need to be aware of. We have to look at the currents underneath these things. You know, why is Governor Abbott up there immediately? on a stage with a bunch of law enforcement officers. And one of those guys was manspreading. Like there was one cop at the end of the table, if you saw this thing, who's just looked way too casual for the moment. Like, excuse me, sit up straight, motherfucker. 22 people are dead. 21, whatever it was. Sit up straight. Don't sit there with your legs all spread, you know? But they, they had this arrogance to them. I won't rehash it, but it, it was offensive. I knew something was deeply wrong in an already horrible situation when I saw that press conference. I knew in my gut as a New Yorker, like, oh, these guys are bullshitting. You know, the way they reacted to Beto was fear. They did it in bravado. Get out of the room, you son of a bitch. That was the mayor of the town who a real honest mayor would have been crying. He would have been in the living rooms of the families that lost their kids. He wouldn't be sitting up there with the governor 
but he's an anti-border, anti-immigration guy. He's been on Fox News a gazillion times. He's a MAGA guy. He's an asshole. He's a white-haired white man who's trying to keep his foothold on power, as all these guys are. So when you become aware of it, you know, when you see why Captain Cornbread, you know, and Sergeant Brisket are sitting up there trying to bully honest people, asking them honest questions. You know, the Texas legislator is out of session till next year. That's why people were getting up and saying, are you going to call a special session? Which they did after Santa Fe, because they don't even have a chance to legislate this stuff until the next calendar year. That's insane. It's not even June yet. Right? But their defensive posture of no, this is how things are done around here. Let's thank the law enforcement. You got to look beyond that. You got to question why every GOP instantly sent out tweets. I'd like to thank law enforcement. How about offering some aid and comfort to the bereaved and the people in shock? The cops are supposed to do that. That's their job. Why are you thanking people that are getting a paycheck? Honor them when it's appropriate, not in your initial tweet about a mass shooting. And the fact that they say this isn't political, there's nothing more political. It's the most political issue of our time besides abortion, which is another way in which Texas leads draconian laws, right? They've outlawed all forms of abortion. They let people become essentially bounty hunters against doctors and patients that have a medical procedure that's no man's goddamn business, right? But it's an issue that you can hold up a Bible and a flag and say, I'm for guns, I'm pro-life. Well, what about those kids who just got slaughtered? Oh, well, you know, hey, we, we'll, what can you do? Thoughts and prayers. Don't make it political now. Screw that. You know, it's all political. All art is political. Life is political. Everything that you come in contact with your life has to do with some measure of politics, from the building codes that go into the house that you're sitting in or apartment, to the streets you drive on, to the traffic lights, to the speed limits, to the television stations. It's all regulated. It's all come through some form of policy and debate and legislation, which means we can change the things that aren't working, especially the things that are black and white. It's not evil in terms of a concept that the Republicans like, well, you can't legislate against evil. Yeah, you can. You can keep evil motherfuckers from having guns that can kill a bunch of us in five minutes and that the cops are too afraid to confront. And even when they do confront them, like the brave retired police officer who was working as a security guard in Tops in Buffalo, where they're all being buried this weekend and God rest them and their souls. And may, may God give comfort to their families. That brave armed good guy was murdered by the dude he confronted because the guy had a weapon of war and armor on and a helmet. Dudes shouldn't be walking around with that. You don't let 18-year-olds dress up like G.I. Joe and get machine guns. That's the dumbest thing anyone's ever heard of. Have you ever met an 18-year-old? Give him a bong or a lacrosse stick, you know, or whatever, but you don't give them crap 
that they're reading about online. And all these guys are sickos online. You know, it, it's, it's obvious that something isn't right, you know, and, and all this stuff is creating a situation in which you have to apply some, some, some prudent measures to protect us all, right? You couldn't do general mission concerts after there was a riot at a WHO concert, right? In Cincinnati, it was like, festival seating is no longer a good idea because everybody's going to run in at the same time to get the best seat and they're going to trample each other. So you outlaw it, right? It doesn't work that way anymore, right? If you're in a pit or something, it's, it's highly regulated. They don't let people just run in and grab a seat, right? Because it wasn't safe. People weren't kind and cool enough on a million quaaludes and a 12-pack, you know, to be cognizant of those around them. You know, it was all young people, like, getting all wilded out. It's like Woodstock 99. I was there. Like, that was a dumb idea. Some things are just going to make it worse. Letting 18-year-old males, especially ones in a country that has an epidemic of white supremacy, racism, half of the political party, or, you know, one half of the, it's not the population, but, you know, the other party that's a third of the population runs on racism and QAnon and violent imagery. You got congressmen and women that pose with guns in their commercials. You got Lauren Boebert wearing a holster and a gun. You know, you got these people that fetishize guns in positions of authority. And impressionable minds believe that. The kid in Buffalo lives in the same region as, you know, Elise Stefanik, same part of New York. It's not the same district. She's in 21. He was in, he did the shooting in 26. I don't, I don't know where he lived, but you know, point is it's the same culture. So when you see the politicians reinforcing something that you're reading on 4chan or whatever, or Facebook, even it's dangerous. So a climate like that, you don't let everybody run around with guns. All right. So, you know, I hope everybody has a good Memorial day when you're listening to this. I hope you have a good week. I hope a lot of healing comes our way. Hopefully the weather will be nice. It's rainy today in New York and it feels like it needs to be rainy. You know, the sky needs a good cry, but uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for all the support, all the kind messages about my grandma. I can't tell you how much it means to me. I love you all. I appreciate you all listening every week. Take care of each other. We're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. You know, as hard as it is and as tragic as it is, I believe death is like the period at the end of the sentence. It's not the end of the story. And that's no comfort now. But those loved ones will be reunited someday. In whatever way that is, it's not the end of the story. Life goes on. Love lives forever. You can't take away love, you know? So bring some light. Bring some love into your hearts. Come and see me. Again, I'll be at City Winery New York on June 7th. City Winery Philadelphia, June 8th. This has been episode 65. Until next week, peace.